Welcome to Bandit's Keep. I'm Daniel. In this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a subject that's been floating around, which is uh, hidden hit points and different ways to do hit points. So I'm going to throw something out there to see what you guys think. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about my experience hex crawling using the Outdoor Survival set, as is recommended in the uh, original Dungeons & Dragons set. We take some calls from Taylor from Cleric Square Ringmail, and also Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast. All right, so I was <laughs> listening to, I think it was on Nerds RPG Variety Cast. It may have been on Down in a Heap, it, talking about my favorite subject, which is the usage die. And I have said on more than one occasion that the usage die is the hill that I would die on, saying that I don't think it's a mechanic that I would ever want to use. Again, you use what you like in your game. I'm not telling you you shouldn't use it, but it's one of those things that people talk about as if it's the second coming and the best thing in the world. And I just I just don't get it. Uh, I don't. But as I was listening to this, it occurred to me there is a place where it could be really interesting. And this ties into something else that they were talking about over on Nerd RPG Variety Cast, which is hidden hit points. That's right. What if we use a usage die for hit points? Instead of rolling a damage die when a character, when a monster attacks a player or hits them, or you could do it with the monsters too. Instead, the defender rolls their usage die, their hit point usage die. A magic user would have a d4, right? A thief, probably a d4, depending on the system you're playing. A cleric, a d6. A fighter, a d8. And when this usage die gets down to the d4 and then they roll a one or a two, that's it, buddy. You're gone. Healing knocks it back up one usage die, as does obviously resting and stuff. Now, how I would deal with leveling, I'm not sure. Part of me thinks, and this is where usage die experts can come in, part of me thinks it wouldn't be that when you level up, you go up one usage die in the chain. Maybe that is the way it should work. Again, people can let me know. I'm wondering if you would just have two of them, and then you would roll until one was expired, and then roll the next one until it expires. I guess uh, people can tell me if that makes sense or not. That's how I would do it, not knowing the how the usage die is used in a lot of different systems. But that, that seems to make more sense to me, so more usage dice. And then, of course, as you healed, you'd have to get them back. You know, if you used up an entire usage die, you would have to heal to get even the D4 back on the first one. I feel like that makes more sense, also because it wouldn't take too many levels for you to get to the point where you were at a D20 or a D30 or whatever, and then, then it becomes nearly impossible for you to ever drop, so... I think you get superpowered too fast if you went up a die every single time you leveled. So I'm leaning towards the idea of uh, additional dice. So that's what I'm thinking. It's uh, kind of a quick idea, as I was thinking of, as I love to just toss around different mechanics. It seems like a way that, besides the things that some people have mentioned, like diseases, which I think is kind of interesting as well, I don't like it for spell durations because I tend to like the magic user and stuff to know what they're getting. But that's just me. I would, I could see using it for potions maybe as well. But this is kind of interesting. I don't think there's any games that do this. So let me know, guys, if there's a game out there that uses usage dice for hit points. Because I would love to know. It seems like a nice way to abstract what is already abstracted. And it also puts the, the fate of the players in their hands, right? Because they're rolling their usage die for defense instead of an attack with the weapon. Now, you might be saying, uh, well, but what if somebody attacks with a weapon that has, you know typically would do more damage or whatever. Well, again, that's the kind of thing we're abstracting here. You could make it so they have a better chance to hit, which I uh, actually, in my mind, 
that makes way more sense than weapons doing more hit point damage. I like weapons that are more likely to damage you to do more damage. That is, I mean, to have a better chance of hitting. So, like, for instance, you could have a two-handed sword have a plus one to the hit when they're swinging it, and a dagger have a minus one to the hit. So there's less chance of it uh, hitting, thus less chance of it causing damage. Because hit points are already kind of questionable anyways, right? So, I don't know. Let me know. Maybe that's two different mechanics I'm talking about there. But that is going to be the one debate, right? Like, well, no, but all the weapons are doing the same damage then. Which, obviously, if you know that I'm running mostly od and I don't have a problem with that. But I know people like variable weapon damage. Let me know what you guys think. All right, so back into the world of od and with Chainmail. I am, uh, as one of my players said, I'm not, this is not an exact quote, but they said we're basically like reenactors of 1970s D&D. <laughs> and I busted out the outdoor survival uh, map. It's called it, yeah, outdoor survival. And just as the rules say to do, and we hex crawled through it the other session, and it was super fun. Now, I'm going to say this. So there's a couple of changes I made. Basically, if you go at rules uh, the way it's suggested in the rules, your catch basins, so your water, uh, your puddles and stuff, they are towns. No, they're castles, and the buildings are towns, and they don't worry too much about – actually, it doesn't have any explanation at all about water and food in uh, OD&D. I guess it's just assumed that you're carrying rations, and they're not overly worrying about water. They also have slightly different movement penalties and a different movement rate than the outdoor survival game itself has. But I thought it would be super fun for my group, since only one of the players has actually played Outdoor Survival, to actually use the full-on Outdoor Survival rules, where basically they've got six movement points, and then as they don't get food and water as the days progress, they get slower and slower in their movement, you know, and they have to stay places to get more water. So I basically did that, but I used, uh, I think it's number three scenario, the search one, where there's a chance they can find water by rolling every day, even if they don't pass through a water hex. We played for a full season, a full session. One of my players was like, have you tricked us into playing a board game? <laughs> yes, kind of. But they really enjoyed it, and I really enjoyed it. So the way I did it, again, I'm just going to run through it for people who don't know Outdoor Survival. Effectively, it's a hex map board. You have a little token that represents your character. They have a number on it, which equals the movement points that they have. You start with six. And as you, what you do is at the beginning of each day, you roll a d6. And depending on what you roll, you have options. It could be... You're effectively lost. You have to move your full movement in a random direction. Or in this case, it was full movement in any direction you choose, but you can't turn. There's one where you can move your full move. You have to move your full movement, but you can turn once. And then if you roll a six, which is the best roll, of course, you can move as up to your full movement. So you can move less if you want, and you can turn as many times as you want. They rolled that every day to see what they could move or how they moved. And then at the end of the day, we rolled a D6 like you do in OD&D. Now, in OD&D, it's not a separate roll to see if you get lost in Wandering Monsters. It's the same D6 roll. The getting lost is based on the low end of the chain, and the monster is the high end of the chain. So, for instance, if you're in the grassy lands, if you roll a 1 on that D6, you're lost. If you roll a 6 on that D6, you are encountering a monster. If you roll anything in between, you get nothing, and of course it varies. So I had them roll that, and what I did was instead of the lost, the outdoor survival itself has hazards uh, that you can encounter. So if they rolled the lost thing, I gave them hazards. That was really fun. That added up to a lot of cool stuff where they, you know, lost water or gained water or any number of things. Being outside in OD&D is incredibly dangerous, even though the characters are high level. Yeah, <laughs> they almost died at the very last. We actually ended the game after a fight with four hill giants. Four hill giants against our party of four because my other player who hadn't attended the last couple of times came back. 
And they're all fourth level. Actually, one's fifth level. And they had two uh, uh, lycanthropes, werebores, that had joined the party uh, as NPCs. One of those werebores died, unfortunately. But all the PCs survived barely, and they defeated the giants partially through uh, strength of arms and partially through very well-used spells. A light spell to blind one of the giants who ran off in a random direction, and another spell that comes from... Ooh, I think it came from it came from a Kickstarter I did that it's effectively a fly spell, but when it when you cast it upon yourself, it uh, you can't do anything. You can't talk. You can't attack. You can't you know, like cast spells. You're basically it's like a low. It's a first level spell, but it, it allows you to fly. But like in a really janky, it throws you around in the air basically. Uh, and they were like, "Can I cast it on somebody else?" And I said, "You can, but they're going to get a good saving throw because you got to touch them number one, and they're going to try to resist it." And uh, they failed their safe. So this one giant was being tossed in the air, unable to figure out how to fly, inexperienced with the spell. So that really knocked them down to just two giants they were facing. And even with that, one of the player characters was fighting on fantasy combat, and they one more hit would have killed him. Like I said, one of the lycanthropes died. And a couple of other player characters really, really <laughs> came very close to dying as well. So, yeah, it was, it was tough, man. Four hill giants is nothing to mess with, especially... Uh, you know, when you're out in the wilderness and you don't have a whole lot of uh, troops and stuff with you. If you got a whole, you know, 20-man mercenary group with you, that's one thing, but small group in the wilderness. In any case, I'm now moving over into, as they make it off the side of the map, which they'll almost certainly do at the very beginning of the next session because they're right at the edge now, uh, they're going to move into, I'm using the Carcosa supplements. Not the book, oh, I am going to use the book as well, but not the map from the main book that was uh, written for OD&D, but uh, there are some other supplements that uh, Jeffrey put out. And they're in search of this jungle, so I found one that has a jungle. So they're going to do a little more hex crawling across Carcosa. And they're going to find lots of slimes and purple worms and weirdness there. So we'll see what happens. Hey, Daniel. This is Taylor of Cleric's Way of Ringmail. Calling in. Still here. Still listening. Thinking about the combat result table. That is interesting. It's kind of like the narrative mechanic, the what is it, the yes and uh, or yes but, except applied at a war game scale. Now, I am hideously underexperienced in hex and chit kind of war games, but I have played skirmish games extensively in my time, and uh, this is something that's vaguely new to me. I like the idea of the ratio. I'm curious about how that would be affected by either a hero or how the men at arms were armed or armored, but I will uh, let you describe it or let you post about the play. And so that's not necessarily that armored foot would do better against a bear, uh, but instead would a group of folks armed with garlic do better against a vampire? Would a group of folks with wolfsbane do better against lycanthropes? And so st stuff like that that may affect the ratio or the die. Reward creative thinking on the part of the party. Okay, I'll jump in here and kind of half answer <laughs> this in two parts. As far as the garlic or crosses or silver or anything like that, I wouldn't give a bonus to the attacker for that. I would more likely use it the way I use it in OD&D with Chainmail, and the example there would be, in OD&D with Chainmail, uh, Lycanthropes defend as four armored foot, normally. But if you use silvered arrows against Lycanthropes, they defend as four light foot. This makes them vulnerable to the silver. That kind of works with the 
the idea, right? Now, in the case of, let's say, garlic with the vampire or a cross, you might say, well, a vampire is normally worth eight men. But if presented with garlic, uh, they're distracted, they're, they're not as powerful, they're going to only be worth six men in the combat. Or perhaps they're, a cross is held up and they're only uh, two men. And now all of a sudden you've changed the ratio from uh, one over two to two over one, which is a huge deal. So a hero fighting a vampire while wielding a cross is going to have a much better chance of killing the vampire than one that doesn't. So that player choice would make a difference. And so my own solution, or the solution I'd authored so far, to the same problem that is a wild animal attacking uh, the party was to create a couple different attack types and liken them to different weapons on the man-to-man table. So you would attack as a slashing, uh, rending attack, or you would attack as a bludgeoning type. So the former being, say, maybe the bear attacking with its claws, or the latter being a ram headbutting. We'll see how that works, but that doesn't account for the secondary concern that your result table would, which would be the dragon, the balrog, the demon, the and so the giant ape, that's good, but those other, the fantasy combat entries, I don't have a solution. Or yet. In the meantime, I trust that you'll keep us abreast of the results of how the combat result table plays, and uh, I, on my end, as I try to ease into playing and running a little bit more, uh, or at least a little more regularly, uh, I will keep everybody posted on uh, what I learned too. Looking forward to hearing whatever comes out. Delvon, my buddy, Delvon. Right, so this brings up a really interesting thing, right? Of course, right, if you are fighting narratively and you're fighting a vampire or whatever, like I said, it just has a rating. We're not worried about how it's attacking. But, right, if you're attacking a bear, shouldn't you have an advantage if you're using a spear against it? Shouldn't you have an advantage or disadvantage if you're using a dagger, right? I don't know. Uh, This is, you know, this is all relevant. If you want to use the combat result table for that, then I think you have to start assigning values to the armament of your troops. That is, you break them into categories where they have armament. So when you're looking at your men, they're going to have a defense value and they're going to have an attack value. This is pretty much how the uh, Sticks and Stones works, the, one, the game that I actually pulled the table from for my first test. Effectively, you've got a bunch of different Neanderthals. You've got unarmed Neanderthals. You've got those armed with, I think, clubs. And then you've got them armed with axes and then also bows. And what you do is, the they can also be armored, but let's just look at the unarmored for now. They've all got a defense value of two, but the attack value of the unarmed ones, I believe, is also two. The club gives them an attack value of three, and the axe an attack value of four. And they have bows as well, which gives an attack value of six. So when you're looking at it like that, you could say, okay, well, no armor gives you a defense of two. Chain mail gives you a defense of four. Plate mail gives you a defense of six. And then you just look at your different categories of weapons. You could just make a list of weapons and jot them down. I would off the top of my head, I'd probably look, this is how I normally handle these things. I usually look at the um, variable weapon damage 
which is pretty standardized in the the kind of the retro clones and stuff, and say all the D4 weapons would, let's say, have an attack value of 2, all the D6 value, value of 3, all the D8s would have a value of 4, all the D10s would have a value of 6, something like that, right? So now you can lay your stuff out. So a, a fighter, let's say, in a plate mail suit with a two-handed sword is going to have an attack and a defense value of 6, whereas a magic user wearing no armor with a dagger is going to have both attack and defenses too, and you can kind of work out the rest of it. As far as the animals, you would just have to decide, okay, well, a bear is worth X, which I probably would just straight up based on their hit dice, because in general, I think the hit dice works well, both encompassing the power of the creature and its kind of size and stuff, right? So, if you're fighting a bear, it generally has a decent amount of hit dice. If you're fighting a skeleton, it usually doesn't have much. And, you know, they're both equally weak in every way, if that makes sense. You know, a skeleton is much weaker at attack and defense as a bear and vice versa. So that's probably what I would do. I mean, simple enough. And then obviously you multiply it by the number of men. So if you are a hero or if you're using it in, let's say, an OD&D type game, you just look at how many men you attack as. So I attack as three men, and my attack value is six, so my total value is 18. And all you got to do is just add up everybody's total value in the group, divide, you know, see where they fall, you know, lowest common denominator deal, see where they fall on the table, and boom, you're good to go. So that's probably how I would handle it off the top of my head. I don't think I'm going to use it as a as my main system, but... Maybe I will now that I'm working it out. I just worked it out there. So it's pretty cool. I mean, I think it can work, and I think it's an interesting way to work, especially with uh, things you can't put together. Like, obviously, we're using weapons here. I'm explaining how I would use weapons, but I feel like its strength for me is not that, but rather the more abstract stuff, the animals, the vampires, things like that. I still think for the most part, for me anyways, I'm going to stick with man-to-man combat when people actually are using weapons and they're not supernatural. And I'll probably use the troop-style combat uh, still as a... Uh, for animals, at least in OD&D. But as I come into this uh, Unchained, and I'm trying to minimize it, as I probably said in the last podcast, I think I will. I think I've worked out now how I want to do the animals, <laughs> just, as, just as I just did. And that means I will likely have to do the weapons, as I also just said. So there you go. I just worked it out. I just went around in a circle. Thank you for allowing me to... Sp- <laughs> To think out loud, you've just seen the process of Daniel creating something. Or maybe I'm not creating something. I could be remembering other things, or I'm kind of riffing off something I've already seen. I shouldn't use the word create. But anyways, uh, thanks for your calls, uh, Taylor. And if people don't know, uh, make sure you're following uh, not only uh, Taylor's podcast here, but also his great blog, Clerk Swearing Mail. Hey, Daniel, Jason here. Listen to part one of my players wouldn't like that. And... I think that makes sense. You know, the sword and sorcery, your, your creatures on the tables for the sword and sorcery game should mirror the sword and sorcery fiction. And let's be honest, they don't normally fight dragons and, and um, you, you know, Conan or, or Cole or any of that. You might have giant lizards, right? And, and you have demons, but I, I don't know that. I'd, I'd have to look at the table again. But for the most part, I think changing that table makes sense. And, and yeah, the change you're talking about with combat results table makes a lot of sense, too. Conan should definitely be, you, you know, well above the average soldier, but he, he, should, he should be challenged by a ton of soldiers 
or by, you know, certain creatures. And I like the idea of if you get enough regular men, they can take on these horrible things. They're just scared to do it. On Joe's call about accessibility, that is one advantage that a lot of the OSR games and the quote-unquote indie games, and I'm not using those terms in a derogatory sense, I'm, I'm just using, you know, the more DIY games, right? I, I think a lot of those put out their their stuff in a, you know, just a text format. You can get delving deeper that way. You used to be able to get sword, Swords of Wizardry that way. way. I don't know if you still can. Um, I, I know there are a bunch of games out there like that, more on the indie scene than the big man, than the big companies. But, you know, where you could get just like a rich text format, you know, just basically a plain text format of the rules and all that. So maybe it's more of an issue with the big manufacturers. I don't know. It seems like the smaller guys are pretty open to that kind of thing. And I wonder what kind of response we'd get if we actually reached out to the companies and asked them for it. So responding to your response to me about art and, and layout. Yeah, so art doesn't matter to me in an RPG product. I mean, nice art's okay, but it's not a, a deal breaker. But layout, layout's more important. I, I can handle a poorly laid out game if the game's good enough, but I much prefer a game that's well laid out. And layout can turn turn me off from a game. You, you know, especially these days, a modern game, you know, back in the day, we're willing to forgive things, right? Look at OD&D, AD&D, but... You know, a modern game that doesn't have a good table contents, a modern game that doesn't have a good index, uh, you know, that isn't laid out, you, you know, in a more intelligent manner, that that's, that is a turnoff to, for me for a modern game. I, I am much more forgiving in an older game just because, of, you know, it, it is what it is. If you're looking for more conventions that you might enjoy, Daniel, I would recommend looking at GrogCon in Florida at the very end of September. That's a... You know, it's primarily focused on AD&D first edition. What could be better? Thanks, Jason, for all those calls. Um, so I'll just try to hit all the points if I can remember them all. Um, yeah, I think, too, with the sword and sorcery, part of my thought is that, unlike D&D, you know, the general way D&D is played, like, I feel like most monsters are one-off, too, right? So having a fixed table with those monsters listed, I guess you could do general swaths of monsters, right? Uh, beast men, uh, ogres or giants, dragons, but I think just having each monster being unique is probably my my plan for that. And I'll and I'll write something in the game about how to create those monsters. Uh, to your layout thing, yeah, I I understand and I, I agree with you actually. But I'm also wondering. I don't know if I said this in the last podcast. You know, I think that there's two ways. Uh, there's two ways, right? There's two ways to design a game, right? One is to design it so that it is easy to use at the table. And the other one is to design it so that it's easy to consume and learn. I feel like those two things are often different. Easy to use at the table is super short writing, quick tables, a great index. Easy to learn has explanation of things, has examples that you've got to read through. And at least for me, I learn much better by reading the examples. I often say that you could read the two examples of play in Mulvey Basic and know how to play D&D without ever reading the rest of the rules you know and not you wouldn't dm it with that but you certainly could be a player and so i think that's really important um yeah also i think you're right too about the accessibility thing i don't know again i, I would love to hear from joe Moore. Uh, the a lot of the osr type stuff does actually offer plain text 
but I don't know if they made those accessible because I think you have to make them accessible. I'm, I'm, this has really got my mind going. And I'm looking into more and more how to do this um, for my projects I'm doing in the future and maybe jumping back to the couple that I have public because, yeah, why wouldn't you want your stuff in front of more people? I, I, don't, I don't really understand that. Um, as to uh, GrogCon, I don't know that they'll let me back in Florida, but I probably don't want to talk about that here. <laughs> no, uh, no, that might be cool. Uh, September is also a pretty decent time to come to Florida or go to Florida as it would be. Um, having lived in Miami, uh, you know, who knows? You never know what might happen, right? Uh, maybe I'll drive down and I'll wave, wave to you on the way back. Bye. <laughs> we'll talk about electric cars. <laughs> um, all right. What was the last thing? You mentioned one more thing, and it was actually probably super relevant, and now I'm, it's my mind is slipping. I may stop recording and go back and listen to it again. Let's see. Ah, yes, the uh, my players wouldn't like it. You know, maybe, although probably the answer to that truly is that the GM, the person getting ready to run the game, doesn't think that they will like it, so they're not going to presented to their players because usually when i hear it said it's usually with people who have like oh well they're new to rpgs they're not going to want to do that they're new to rpgs they don't want to do this i actually once had a conversation with the guy who told me and he was in game design and he straight up said with a completely straight face if somebody's character dies the first time they play an rpg they will never play again and i said well that what <laughs> That I don't know. What about all the people that played in the seventies? What about all the people who've played in my games who have who died? No, no, that can't be true. You're just saying that. No, no, people do it. You know, I mean, I'm not saying they should go around, uh, you know, taking off people's characters if they're brand new to a game, obviously. But to make a blanket statement like people won't like something because you don't like it, I think is kind of what I was going at there. And usually, the things that people say people won't like are the heavily mechanical things, the encumbrance, the the travel speeds, the the buying equipment, the having to worry about it. And, you know, it's interesting. There was a – I'm going to totally take a sideline here. There was a video recently uh, by Justin Alexander, the Alexandrian, and he was talking about – he was reading through uh, the OD&D uh, books. I think he's on the first book. Yeah, definitely the first book. And he was talking about the equipment list, and he made some, a statement that I thought was really interesting. You know, he said that if you look at the list of equipment that's listed in OD&D – it tells you something about the players who created that game, you know, that's clearly somebody in the group was using a 10-foot pole or spikes or whatever, and that's what made them add it to the game, right? Because nothing existed before that in, in that way, right? But that's only one side of the story. The other side is that everybody who picked up OD&D that had never played with those groups looked at that equipment list and said, why do I need a 10-foot pole? Clearly, it must be important. I'm going to buy one. And then they started using it however they were going to use it, and that became part of the culture. If you just say, you have whatever equipment you need, a lot of tables, a lot of people would have never picked up 10-foot poles, which are, well, were, you know, a staple of D&D, you know, in the beginning. And I think that this is super important and super interesting. And the parts of the game that we're kind of washing over because we don't think new players will like are the parts of the game that truly show people what makes the game interesting, at least in my mind. So that's kind of what I feel like there. I was also doing a minor rant. So obviously some people know their tables. I have a pretty good sense of what my players would like, although I usually ask them. Uh, and again, it comes down to presentation. If you come in really positive, like, hey, I want to try something and they're cool 
you know, as most players are, at least that I've played with, they'll give it a shot, you know. Uh, if you come in with like, well, we want to try this game, but, you know, it has all these extra encumbrance rules and you got to track your hit points and your arrows, of course they're not going to like it. They're going to be like, oh, yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> you know, so it's all about presentation there. But, uh, but yeah, to each their own, obviously. You know, it's you know that I don't like these these like wide swath statements. They always bother me. This is bad. That's bad. This is this, and that that falls into that that category for me. Except for the usage die, which is terrible. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Obviously, it's good for some things. Thanks for listening. If you have anything you'd like to add to any of the things I talked about or some other question you might have, feel free to send me a message using the Anchor app. There is a link in the description.